Well, good morning. Um, let me add my uh, welcome to that of Peter's. My name is Matt. I'm one of the other elders here. Um, and this morning we're continuing a series that we've been doing in the book of Matthew. Um, so this morning we are looking at Matthew 21, verses 12 to 22. And that is on page 826 of the Church Bibles. Page 826. So Matthew 21, verses 12 to 22. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. As we hear God's word, let's pray. The psalmist writes, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. And so our heavenly father, please teach us your statutes. Make us understand the way of your precepts, that we might meditate on your wondrous works. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there was a time where, if you lived in New York and you had the financial means, the man to whom you wanted to entrust your money was Bernie Madoff. Uh, By promising amazing returns over almost 50 years, he steadily grew his investment business from scratch to the point where it managed client accounts worth $65 billion. And the only problem was, it was all a lie. His company had the appearance of a, a respectable, profitable, successful stockbroker, but beneath the surface, it was just another pyramid scheme where money is taken from a client on the basis it would be invested, but actually that money is just used to make the owner rich. Except it wasn't just another pyramid scheme. It was the largest pyramid scheme in history. And this is not unlike what Jesus finds at the temple, because the temple is also perpetrating a fraud. It's also pretending to be something that it isn't. And last week, uh, if you were with us, we saw uh, Christ go public uh, with his identity as God's rescuing king. 
And this week, uh, we see another side to his kingly rule. But he is also the judging king who has come to purify his church. And so we've got two pictures of judgment this morning that show us what's wrong with the church, but also what Christ is going to do about it. So our first picture, our first picture is a cleansing, and this is in verses 12 to 17. So do just look down with me at verse 12. It's perhaps unsurprising that the, the first place that Jesus goes when he comes into Jerusalem is to the temple. Because it's the most important place in terms of Israel's relationship with God. And what does Jesus find when he enters the temple? Well, he finds it resembles not so much a temple as a giant Tesco extra. The temple has been turned into a religious supermarket. Now, as it's at Passover, the temple would have been particularly busy with people coming from all over Israel to worship. And at first glance, the presence of money changers and the market traders in the temple looks quite legitimate, looks quite sensible and helpful in relation to their worship. After all, just think of it, it's it's difficult for people who have travelled from the other end of Israel to bring a suitable sacrifice with them and keep it in perfect condition uh, during their journey. So they're able to buy uh, their sacrifice there in the temple but at an inflated price. But then the worshippers, because the the market is in the temple, are not able to use their usual currency to buy the sacrifices. They can't use the pagan Roman currency, so they need to turn it into the temple currency at a high rate of interest. And you can begin to see what's wrong, how all is not as it seems Everything's being done in the name of God to help and serve his people, but it's a sham. The traders care not a jot for the worship of God. It's completely self-serving. It's pure exploitation for personal gain. What's happening is actually the very opposite of what it should be. The temple is a place of exploitation rather than a blessing. It's a hindrance to worship, rather than a help. And so Jesus judges this behaviour and he overturns the tables and he drives out uh, the, the traders and the money changers. Now, the Old Testament had long promised that one day God himself would come to his temple and he would cleanse it of its impurities and he would restore worship that is pleasing to the Lord. And in judging what he finds at the temple, Jesus is presenting them and us with further evidence that he is the promised Messiah. And the surprisingly physical nature of Jesus' reaction just makes it stand out all the more, doesn't it? It emphasises his displeasure and his righteous anger at what he sees. And so now, in verse 13, the judge delivers his verdict. He said to them, it is written that my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Jesus shows what the temple should be by referring to Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, a house of prayer. 
Now, it doesn't just mean that it's supposed to be a place to pray. He's using prayer to to represent the whole worship of God, much like uh, we might say that someone has nice wheels when we're referring to someone's new car. We don't just mean the wheels, we mean the whole thing. If we look more closely at Isaiah 56, then we see that the full quotation is actually, my house shall shall be a house of prayer for all nations. And the purpose of the temple is to be a light to the whole world. It's to call the nations to worship the one true and living God. But Jesus then quotes from Jeremiah 7, verse 11, to say that rather than being this, it's become a den of robbers. (coughs) Where God is not praised, but he is literally robbed of glory and honour, just as his people are robbed of their money. So Christ has judged the traders and money changers. And so now he turns his attention to the chief priests and the scribes, those under whose watch the temple's worship has been corrupted. But first, Christ reminds them what worship pleasing to the Lord looks like. There in verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. See, in the hands of man, the temple is a place of exploitation. But in the hands of Christ, it's a hospital. Christ has not come for the well, for those who think that they're okay, but for the sick, for those who have nothing to give, who have no status to stand on, those who know that they need a saviour. In the magician's nephew, the first book in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan the lion sings Narnia into existence. (coughs) It's a beautiful song that delights most of the characters, Diggory, Polly, the cabbie, and so on. But not Uncle Andrew. Uncle Andrew realised that the noise that he heard was a song, but he disliked the song very much. And we're told it made him think and feel things that he did not want to think and feel. And when the sun rose and he saw the singer was a lion, he then tried his hardest to convince himself that all he could hear was a lion's roar. And the longer and the more beautiful Aslan sang, the harder he tried to make himself believe he could hear nothing but roaring. Until that's all he could hear. Terrifying roaring. Not beautiful song. And that's a bit like what we see here in verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. We've got here two beautiful God-glorifying things. The healing of the, the lame and the blind, and the praise from the children of Jesus as the Messiah. It's like Aslan's song but not for the chief priests and the scribes. They don't hear a song. They just hear a lion roaring. They're perfectly happy with the noise of the market, but they cannot stand praise for Christ. And they expected Jesus to do something about this there in verse 16. But he effectively just says, well, what did you expect? 
These children aren't wrong. Their praises are misplaced. Just look at Psalm 8. When the Messiah comes, even babies and infants will cry out in praise. So what does the children singing to me tell you about who I am? See, in their song, the children see what the chief priests and the scribes emphatically do not. Outwardly, the religious leaders say they're waiting for the Messiah, but functionally they aren't. For when he comes, they don't receive him. They will not accept his authority. They will not submit to his rule. And this goes some way to explaining why the temple is in such a mess. Christ doesn't rule their hearts. They do. The chief priests reject Christ as the Messiah. So Jesus rejects them. Which brings us to our second picture, a cursing. The second picture is a cursing, verses 18 to 19. Now, children, have you ever set off on a journey uh, very early in the morning, too early to have breakfast? You might stop on the way uh, for breakfast, uh, perhaps at McDonald's as a special treat. Well, there's no McDonald's in Jesus' time, <coughs> but there were fig trees. And on his way back to Jerusalem the following day, Jesus became hungry. So Jesus sees a fig tree and it has lots of lush foliage, which is a really good sign. Because though it's not the season for sweet and ripe figs, it does mean the tree will have a smaller edible fruit on it called tach. But as Jesus combs through the leaves, he finds nothing. It's completely empty. There's no fruit. And so we have our second extraordinary physical act of the passage. Jesus says there in verse 19, May no fruit from, uh, ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And what's Christ doing? <coughs> well, he's judging and he's punishing the tree for its hypocrisy. He's judging the fact that the tree is pretending to be something that it isn't. It's pretending to be a fruitful tree, but it's empty. It has no fruit. And in the fig tree, Christ sees what he witnessed in the temple the day before. A church that has lush leaves. It's got the temple and the priesthood and the sacrificial system and feast days. But it has absolutely no fruit. It's got no love for God. It's got no love for neighbour, no grace, no forgiveness, no holiness, nothing. It's pretending to be a house of prayer, but it's just a den of robbers. And so we see in Christ's judgment of the tree, the judgment that will rightly befall Israel. In the years to come, it will be stripped of its leaves. Jerusalem will be destroyed. The temple will be burned. Its people will be scattered. Its sin of not bearing fruit will be punished by not bearing fruit forever. So how are we to respond to these two pictures of God's judgment? Well, they tell us that that judgment isn't something for the world out there, but it's for in here. They tell us that judgment starts with the church. 
Now, children, if you go to the cinema to watch a film and you settle into your big, luxurious leather seat, what comes on screen before the film you came to watch? It's the trailers. They give you a preview of films that are coming out soon, a little glimpse of what's to come. And that's what we have here. Two pictures of judgment, judgment of sin, a cleansing and a cursing that point forward to a much greater judgment to come. Jesus' acts in the temple and with the fig tree are not the final cleansing and the cursing, but they're to prepare us for that time. For Christ will, at his second coming, finally and definitively purify his visible church just as he purified the temple. He will reign over a pure church. And if we know that that ultimate judgment is still to come, then we must judge ourselves now in light of that. It's really important that we are not blasé about the seriousness of religious hypocrisy. We need to see it with the same eyes that Christ sees it. He hates it. And he will do something about it. And that's the message that he's hammered home previously, uh, earlier on in the book of Matthew. Uh, It's something that's hammered home in our passage today. It's something that's going to be hammered home in the next few chapters that we look at in the coming weeks. Christ is really clear. If we have the lush outer leaves of professing to know Christ and of identifying with him through the church then he expects that to be reflected in the way that we live. He doesn't want a performance or an act. He wants what comes from our mouths and what is seen in our lives to be real, not feigned or fake. This is not something that's just unique to them. We're just as likely to find something similar in the church today. Perhaps we're not guilty of turning church into a market, uh, But like the chief priests and the scribes, it's perfectly possible to put on a good show, to look like a Christian in public, but then not practice what we preach. So we might be at church every week. We might take the Lord's Supper. We might even attend the monthly prayer meeting. (coughs) And we might say all the right things, that sin is our greatest problem, that only Christ can save, that we need to repent and believe that Christ welcomes sinners, that he has the power to forgive all our sins. But then that not be reflected in how we live in private. We can be all style and no substance, no sincerity. And what this betrays is that that Christ is not Lord, that the heart does not really submit to him or belong to him. And we might see this most crudely in a Sunday Christian, where we look respectable at church, but not in the way we conduct ourselves at work or around non-church friends. But I suspect it's often much more subtle and pervasive in our circles. Perhaps someone who, when with church friends or, or when talking to non-believers, proclaims the importance and the need for us to confess and repent of all of our sins but then is unwilling to repent themselves. And there are lots of reasons why we might be willing to overlook or hide certain sins. But often it's because we don't want to deal with the consequences of confessing those sins to others. 
Perhaps we love the status and the standing that we have in the church and we don't want to give that up. Perhaps we want to be thought of well and, and fear that others will judge us. Perhaps we just know that making our sin known to others will change the lives we love and make life very hard for the foreseeable future. And we're scared to do that. And it reveals that we're more concerned about what people think of us than what God thinks of us. We're more concerned about our status than our souls. Now, many of you will know that uh, Christopher uh, in our congregation is a pharmacist. And the other day he was telling me about the fact that he's recently been covering something called Radio Pharmacy. Now, much to my disappointment, it isn't a show on hospital radio where patients get to call in and ask Christopher pharmacy questions. It's actually perhaps better to describe it as nuclear pharmacy, where radioactive treatments and medicines are prepared. Now, anything radioactive has to be handled very carefully. It can make us very, very sick if we're around it for too long. So Christopher has to go into a special room. He has to wear protective clothing and he has to wear monitors on his fingers and on his body, all just to keep him safe and make sure he isn't getting too much radiation. Now, if he decided one day that he was just going to do away with all the, of the protections because he no longer thought the radioactive material was dangerous, well, then Christopher would get very, very ill. It would be incredibly dangerous to him. Being unwilling to repent reveals what we really think about sin, that it isn't <coughs> as radioactive and deadly to us as we all say it is. Or maybe we do still think that our sin is radioactive, but perhaps we think that God can be bought. That because we do say and do all the right things, then that will be good enough for God, that he will therefore overlook our sin. But do you see what's happening here? We see that hypocrisy kills repentance. Because it ultimately says that repentance isn't necessary. Paul calls it an appearance of godliness, yet without the power. Because if repentance isn't necessary, then we empty the cross of its saving power. And we deny that the gospel really can save. We deny that God, by his grace and power, can forgive sin. We deny that by God's grace and power, there can be reconciliation and restoration and healing, even if there are consequences, even if that does take time even if that is a hard process. Being unwilling to repent of our sin says that sin doesn't really matter, that Christ didn't really need to die, and that the gospel doesn't really make a difference. All the while continuing to benefit from life in a church that proclaims we are all sinners in need of God's grace. Now we might be able to fool one another, after all, we, we look the part and we can't see each other's hearts. We can't see what lies beneath the surface. We can't see what happens in private. But we can't fool Christ. He sees our hearts. He knows those who offer uh, their hearts to him promptly and sincerely and those that stubbornly do not. And that's why those who talk the talk but don't walk the walk, end up not at a hospital with the sick, 
but at a market with those who are well. And those who are well, who have no need of a saviour, will face the judgment and destruction they deserve. Christ will cleanse his church of religious hypocrites. Christ will curse those who profess to know him, but do not bear fruit. If you think that's you, if you think you're guilty of having an appearance of godliness, yet without the power, then the good news is it isn't too late to repent and believe. Christ stands ready and willing to forgive all of our sins, including those we've long buried, including those that we had no intention of ever confessing or revealing to anyone. We need not follow Israel. We need not face Christ's judgment. For Christ is not only a judge, but he is also the judged. See, on the cross, he faced judgment, the judgment that we deserve so that we don't have to. Our sin was judged fully and finally in him. Yes, there may be practical consequences to admitting our sin. Yes, the road ahead may be hard. But the cross is emphatically not empty of its saving power. The gospel really does save The gospel really does repair and restore and reconcile. What Christ offers us in the gospel is infinitely better than anything that hypocrisy offers. Christ shows us that hypocrisy is ultimately foolish and empty. All it produces is judgment. Whereas Christ can and does give us himself and adoption and acceptance and all the riches of heaven. And like the lame and the blind in the temple, all we need to do is come to him, unworthy, empty-handed, and he will heal us. Well, just as we need repentance and faith in order to be fruitful Christians, well, so too Christ must reign over our hearts and lives. If Christ has authority over us, then that means that we will be led by and shaped by his word. To submit to his word is to submit to Christ. That's what submission to Christ looks like in practice. If you go to the east of Scotland, you might come across the fourth bridge. It's a big metal railway bridge that carries the railway line across a body of water called the Firth of Forth. (coughs) It's made of metal and it's very distinctive because it's painted red. And it's so long and so complex that the job of looking after it and making sure it's in good condition never ends. It's famously said, perhaps apocryphally, uh, that it takes so long to paint that once they've finished, it's time to start all over again. And this is true also of the work of submitting to Christ and his word. It never ends. The human heart is deceitful above all things. And so our nature is to move away from rather than towards God's word, to reassert our lordship over Christ rather than to submit to his. And so the work of making sure that no corners of our hearts are holding out, but bringing our hearts and our lives under Christ's lordship and control through repentance and faith is one that we must actively be doing every day of our lives. And that might sometimes seem like an impossible task. 
And that's where the final few verses of our passage today are, are so helpful. Now the disciples, after Christ curses the fig tree, and marvel at his power and ask how he did it. And he replies in verse 21, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done in the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. <coughs> Nothing, not even a mountain being thrown into the sea, is impossible with God. If you have faith, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. You just need to trust Christ and pray. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, for the clarity of your word this morning and helping understand, us understand more about Christ's kingship, his love for the church and for the way he does it so graciously uh, to help us prepare for his second coming. Will we hear the warning about religious hypocrisy? Would we examine our hearts and come to him in repentance and faith, knowing that he is not only the judge, but he is also the judged? In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen.